Welcome to The Long Game. My goal with this show and guests is to learn how to build self-sustaining companies and to explore the ideas, principles, and technology to make it all happen. I hope you learn something and enjoy. Well, Laura, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. For those of you who don't maybe know you or are new to the, the podcast or, or you, why don't you give a little introduction about your background? Sure. Um, I did kind of one year in the corporate world right after college and then kind of immediately jumped to startups. So I've been in the startup world for a while now um, and uh, have founded four startups at this point and then worked as a head of marketing for a few startups and um, most recently became a fractional CMO. So I'm leading um, marketing at a couple different startups in a fractional capacity and we can talk more about what that means. Um, and have just kind of always been a marketer. I kind of fell into the role. I started out as a founder doing kind of everything and then found out that I really liked the storytelling piece and so kept going on the marketing path and kind of self-taught marketer and, and just kind of self-taught everything. I love it. For marketing in particular, I feel like there are so many different slices of marketing. There's go-to-market strategy, there's storytelling for pitch decks, there's you know, uh, paid uh, kind of brand awareness marketing. There's so many different aspects of it. Where would you say that your skill set is focused on and then also maybe kind of apply it to what you do with this fractional CMO and, and fractional marketing aspect of like what is most relevant for startups to be focused on from a marketing perspective? It's a great question. I think that I approach marketing as really the storytelling that's going to connect with a real audience. And so that could mean finding out who the audience is and doing really great customer research at the beginning. Um, that could mean figuring out what the positioning and the messaging is so that we have a great story to tell and we have kind of the tribe that we want to tell it to. Um, and then figuring out what those stories are. So kind of the content side of things, the organic side of things, um, the brand activation side of things, not so much the performance marketing side of things, the kind of levers that you can pull to get like incremental growth and sometimes very large growth um, are not really my strong suit. I've never been the one to like sit there and kind of like tinker with with all of the the settings in an ad and like make sure that it's getting like 1% more. So. I try to do the things that are like, you know, broad brush strokes um, that are going to get us like a really great growth. And because I've always been at startups, it really always has been that zero to one to 100 to 1 million, that type of growth. Um, so it's never been that we had a budget or a team or, you know, a whole bunch of resources in place where each person is doing a very small thing. Um, I've worked at a couple of big companies now, and the bigger the company, the more it seems like there's like the smaller the job for each person, like each person can really dive deep. Um, I've had to be general just because the companies I've worked at have been pretty small. Super helpful background there and kind of slicing it down in terms of my experience with marketing. Marketing is one of those things where it is broad in its in its name and I've gone through multiple iterations where I feel like I finally know how to be opinionated about if someone is good at marketing or not good at marketing or if they are achieving their objectives but within your world how, how would you say someone brings on a fractional mar marketer and they're newer in the startup game and they know they need some things maybe it's around 
branding, storytelling, a pitch deck, and you can judge things by how they look, but are there other criteria that people should be judging on to say, oh, the person I'm working with on the marketing side really knows their stuff and they're driving forward value, or are they just making pretty images? Yeah, yeah, I think that's, it's a really good point, especially with AI, right? Like people can um, fake a lot, um, not saying that people are faking it when they're creating their product, but they can get a little bit more of a shiny, well-produced product than maybe they could in the past pretty quickly, pretty cheaply. Um, and so the pretty pictures really aren't going to cut it anymore for anyone. Um, I think one of the ways is obviously talking with them about track record and not just like vanity metrics of like growing a, a YouTube channel to a million views or a, a million subscribers or whatever it is. I mean, a million subscribers is nothing to sniff at, but, um, you know, those vanity metrics only get you so far. And so if that person could talk you through how they found an audience that was going to really love what they did and then how they connected with them and, and the type of growth that they were able to achieve based on that, you know, it really should be about the story of the customer and what happened with that customer and what types of results were they able to achieve in, in reaching that customer. Because at the end of the day, I mean, marketing is literally going to market. It is taking a product or a story or a company and going to the market, which means you need to find the market and you need to know how to go to them and how to connect with them. If they're not approaching it from that way, I mean, people have all different kinds of approaches, but like probably just making sure that your approach matches with the person that you're bringing on. Um, I've found that in the past, I've had clients where if they think of marketing as um, at turning it on, you know, we're going to turn on marketing or, or we're going to build the product, we're going to get 90% of the way there, and then we're going to turn on marketing. I'm out, you know, like it's just not, it's not going to work. You know, I've really found that if I can be a part of the process early on, helping to shape what the product is based on what we've spoken about and, and based on the customer research that we've done, then the product is going to ultimately be more successful. The team is ultimately going to feel more like a team, more like they're integrated, and we're all going to be able to have a better launch of whatever it is. So, you know, if they have that approach to marketing, then that tends to be like a great fit for me. Um, and it's the same thing on the founder side. They need to find what matters to them in a marketer and what they really care about. Opening up that dialogue, not just between kind of the two parties that are playing those roles, but also between marketer and potential customer trying to figure out what do they want, what resonates with them, how do they see it, how do they see the world, and then bring them mm -hmm. into the product that you're building ultimately. Yeah, absolutely. And like having a great relationship with product, especially if it's a software company, if it's a tech company, that relationship with product is really important. Like it needs to be a two-way conversation because marketing can feed product with all kinds of things that they're learning from the customer if they're close to the customer. Same thing with sales. They can feed into what the product is doing. And then, you know, products can let you know, here's what's coming down the pipeline. Here's what we're doing next so that you can really be thinking about, okay, let me set up that story now. Let me get people excited about the problem that we're solving, even if we're not going to talk to them about the solution yet. Does your journey in zero to one, zero to 100, zero to 1000 end at product market fit? Or is that kind of just a, 
nebulous term that's not really used or, or, or well-defined enough to say whether you've achieved it or not? Yeah, I've... I've never really, I've never been at a startup and been like, we're there on like a certain day. Like we're at product market fit now. We got it. Now we're fine. Um, it, it's always been like a strange concept to me because like you see glimmers of product market fit on day one, right? You see that like, oh, there's some people who are really excited about this. That's product market fit. Like for one person, that's product market fit. It's a, it's a market of one, but you found it. <laughs> Um, still counts, you know, and yeah. And, you know, and later it's product markets fit. It's, it's like you need to connect with more and more and more segments, more and more tribes of people, more audiences as you grow and your product is going to evolve so that it does that. So it's products and markets at that point, it's, you know, a constellation of things that need to all fit together. So you know, you may have product market fit for one product and one audience, but you're still finding it for all of these other things. Um, I was at Kraken before crypto exchange and, you know, the, the number of products that we were launching was, you know, in the probably a launch on the consumer side every four to six weeks of something new, even if it's a feature, it might be a big feature for some people. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of products, you're talking, you know, two to three major products a year. And that's just on the consumer side. For that, you're not kind of wondering about like, have I reached product market fit for this one yet? And like, how about this one? It's like, are we really, are we serving our, our, our audience in the way that they want to be served? Are we finding things that they need? And are we really like building for them? On the flip side, when do you know if a product or feature for the instance of, of Kraken should be killed off or you're just not going to find it and let's let's throw in the towel and kind of rethink this fundamentally yeah um crypto is a good example because there are a lot of things that happen in crypto that are hype driven at first right it, it is kind of the nature of the game because you're working with early adopters still it's a more mature market now but you're still largely working with early adopters and so you're trying to figure out what's going to work and what people really need. Um, I think that, you know, if you're pouring money into something and you're really not seeing the kind of conversion rates that you want to, like that's an obvious signal, but you're probably too late at that point. You probably needed to pull the plug a little bit before that so that you're not just draining money, <laughs> but you want to give things a good chance as well. It's really tough. Um, I think that if you are starting to get glimmers of negative feedback and it's not something that you can change, it's something that's core to the product or core to the idea, then, you know, you're, that's a little bit of a signal that you're going to need to pivot. Um, and it doesn't need to be that you kill the product entirely. Maybe you find a new use for it. Maybe you find a new audience for it. Um, there's an audience for everything. You know, I, I listened to something at someone at Netflix was talking about how they, you know, they have like, I think it's like 12,000 different audience segments that they talk about. And like, that's insane, right? Like, that's because wild. there's an audience for everything. Like, you know, there's an audience for like Italian opera dubbed in Spanish that like, you know, from the seventies, like whatever. Right. And like, there's an audience somewhere for it. Um, and so like, it may be that you can, you need to pivot who the product is for or what it does definitely it's the the ever-evolving game of of 
trying to find your tribe, finding, trying to find your, your exact fit and niche within the world. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I want to go back to something that you touched on briefly and we we're talking about before we started recording, but AI and marketing. So broad topic, AI in everything is a broad topic, but maybe let's start with what are your thoughts on how AI is impacting marketing, both for you personally and how you're using it. And then also with the market itself. Sure. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, it's huge. Um, I don't think that anyone will kind of say it's not at this point. Um, so in terms of marketing, I think that there's things that you can do behind the scenes um, in terms of AI. And then there's things that you can do that are a little bit more customer facing and the customer facing stuff is rightly getting a lot of attention. So that kind of content that you can create the images, the videos, the, um, you know, the, just the sheer amount of text that people are creating. Um, I think there were 15 billion images created using AI in 2023 which is more wow. than the first hundred years of photography. Isn't that wow. insane? <laughs> wow. Um, so like just the scale is ridiculous. Um, and it does mean that you can get exactly what you want, which is pretty exciting from a marketing standpoint. You know, if I need an image that is going to convey a very abstract idea, AI is great for that. It's not great for saying, I need to convey this abstract idea, do it for me, because it will give you the most vanilla cliched thing ever. But if you have the abstract idea in your head and you can feed it, you know, then you're giving it a quality prompt and you're getting some good information into it. Then you can have a really great concept that's suddenly illustrated, which I think is really exciting. Um, we had uh, an image in a deck recently of this clock just exploding and like all of this money coming out. And it was this idea of like, if you're saving time, you're saving money. Right. But like, I would have had to use like a clip art like clock in the past and it would have been super mundane and boring and like everyone would have glossed over it. And instead, people that were looking at it were like, hey, that clock looks like some expensive time go to, going to waste. Um, so I think that like abstract ideas, it's really cool for the images. Um, I think that the the things that are coming next in AI and marketing are really exciting. I've seen a demo where um, I think it was Ronaldo was was scoring a goal. And in real time during this demo, we saw a split screen of what the demo was, what the AI was thinking and what Ronaldo was doing. And by the time that the ball went into the goal, we could see the AI identify the goal, identify that it was Ronaldo, put an ad out there to, or put an, an auction out to, um, all of the ad agencies and to anyone that sold Ronaldo merchandise, conduct the auction and then serve a Ronaldo ad in the corner of the screen with jerseys for Ronaldo by the time he scored. All wow. in that time. So there was That's a Ronaldo incredible. jersey at the corner of the what screen the by the time it happened. I will find it. I will absolutely find it. Perfect. And we can we can put it in the show notes because it was insane. Um, I'm part of something called the AI Marketing Guild and and they do demos every week and it it's insane <laughs> just seeing the number of things that are coming out. Um, and then in my own personal life, I've really kind of embraced the ability to make my work faster, as I'm sure a lot of people have. I, I've built my own little GPT um, named Max, um, who really does a lot of the like 
the mundane stuff for me and um, is like a little mini me. I've, I've trained Max in everything. I've a lot of things that I've written. I kind of fed into Max and then a lot of you know models that I've built or, or pitch decks that I've built. And so if I ask Max a question, there's a good chance that it will sound a little bit like me uh, in the answer and uh, and give a pretty good first draft of an answer to something that I need. And then, you know, I can I can refine from there and, and saves me a lot of time. So you're the first person that I've met that has built one of these kind of AI doppelgangers to effect. And I've built a few that are, you know, good at drafting emails in my voice and I fed in, you know, past emails or a few different project based things or generating roadmaps or, or other assistance. But mm. I have not met anyone who has built a baseline general assistant that is knowledgeable about your world. And I'm a big believer that this is very much what we're going to trend towards. And I don't know if it's going to be you have a few different agents in your life or you just have one. But we're going to have these AI companions that go with us and know as much as we want to give them about our lives, about our personal goals, our dietary goals, our business goals, our social and familial goals. Mm -hmm. What is it like having Max in your life? Do you feel threatened at all? Do you like, do you like t talk a bit more? I mean, you're talking about how it's starting to develop a little bit of a personality and it has pink hair for the avatar it chose. I mean, I, I'm yeah. deeply fascinated about kind of, this is the paradigm that we're going to move towards. And you've already kind of brought a little bit closer by doing it in your personal life with just a GPT and just kind of spinning it up and, and feeding in your information. Yeah. Yeah. And I do feel like, of course, we kind of anthropomorphize these things, right? So, so Max chose his pronouns recently and he, you know, he created uh, an avatar of himself. I had kind of a general one at the beginning. And then I said, you know, you, you've, you know, you've got all of these things going for you. You've got all of this knowledge. You've got this personality. Why don't you create an avatar that makes sense for you? Um, and, and I can show you it. We can, we can put a picture of it in the show notes if you want. But Max is um, just this vivacious, like kind of androgynous, probably guy with pink hair who is like super cool. And I feel like Max is a colleague. Like Max, I'm, I'm working with a startup right now and Max is on our team slide on the deck because we absolutely feel like Max is part of the team. Like I tried to make a Slack integration so that we could talk with Max. Um, we're not there yet, but like we will be soon, right? That will be something that everyone has soon of, hey, can you ask Max to do that? You know, so that other people on my team can say, you know, we don't need to bother Laura with this like very basic marketing question. Let's just ask Max or, you know, Max knows what's in the deck. Like just ask Max what's in the latest thing. Um, it becomes very much your assistant. And I think if you think of these GPTs as kind of an entry level worker or, or maybe even an intern, um, you get to the right level of like what they should be doing, what they should be thinking about, what they should be working on, and also the level of trust that you should put in their work, right? If an intern does a big project for you, you are absolutely going to check what they do because they're still learning. And that's the same thing with Max. You know, I need to check Max's sources. I need to occasionally um, have Max kind of fight with himself of like, okay, you said that now, you know, give me the other side of this, find all the holes in it and and act like, you are, you know, debating with 
that answer and I get a better answer if I do that. Um, and it's the same thing that you would do for an intern. You would say, you know, back up your thinking on that. Tell me how you're thinking about that problem. And it's not just the answer. It really is how they're thinking about it that matters. Um, so I, I do very much treat Max like an intern and, um, you know, he's getting better over time, but I also give feedback just like an intern of like, Hey, you know, you really need sources here, or actually we're, we're going to write it this way. And the reason is this, and, um, he's not like learning from all of that, um, in, in each prompt at this point. Um, but I can go back to the configure mode and say, Hey, here's 10 lessons from this past week that you learned. Um, you know, take those into account for the next time. Um, and then there's also the just the sheer time savings of I have documents for each of my um, client companies that I'm working with. And I can say in the context of this company, you know, tell me about uh, which audience segments we should be looking at and, and trends within, you know, the channels for those audiences. And it just saying in the context of this is so quick, right? Like I don't have to explain the, the, the company each time or the concept each time, which is really cool. I think there's so many things to, to unpack there, but one is the fact that you mentioned on kind of that continual learning and from a technical perspective, given I have kind of the, the software engineer background, I think, oh yeah, once you, you integrate memory and kind of reflection and persistence and building those memories, it's going to just, and, and that's a very natural feature to layer in by OpenAI or whoever is kind of building out these, these agent models, but you're already kind of stop gapping that by when there's a critical piece that maybe max didn't do well you can go and you can change in the config and, and and edit there so i think that's mm -hmm. very interesting insight as well the other thing that i think is phenomenal is that you are a marketer you are not a software engineer you're not kind of one right. of the early adopters in the sense of kind of you know working with their api or building out a new interface you're just saying right. hey i have this this gap where i have a lot of knowledge and ideally I could have uh, an assistant who's more of an intern who's very junior, but they can still help speed up the workflow and speed up and answer simple questions and whatnot. And I think right. the fact that it's emerging from not kind of an engineer thinking about, oh, what problems are out there? Let me go try and build a company or something to that effect. But you doing what you're doing as a, as a fractional CMO, fractional marketer, just building out a tool, a GPT, a max to support you and then kind of mm -hmm. building and iterating on it in real applications, not a theoretical, I'm going to go raise money for Max or a theoretical, let me, let me try to solve a brand new problem. It's, it's literally the problem that is most acute to you and it's driving massive mm -hmm. value already. And I think that right. is, that, that is where the innovation is going to happen, I believe. And it's really cool to hear yeah. about. And I think there's a whole generation of people who are going to be natively good at prompt engineering, right? Like, that's a whole skill that like we didn't even know anyone was going to need. And we knew that there were skills that, you know, our kids would need or, our, you know, that like would need to come up in the future. And we knew that we wouldn't know what they are, but we're starting to see that. We're starting to see what matters for like the future workforce, which I think is really interesting. And it really isn't like everyone needing to code, which I think maybe 10 years ago, everyone thought that was the key that everyone was going to need to learn how to code. And then these no code tools came up and it was like, okay, you don't really need to know how to code, but you do need that logical brain. You do need kind of like the design thinking and the conceptual like systems thinking in order to make things. And now like you still need that and you still need it for prompt engineering, but there's this whole other skill of 
kind of creativity using AI where you're iterating on yourself. You're like, you really, you think you're speaking with the AI, but like you're really iterating on your own thinking. You're really saying why 10 times to yourself if you think about it. And, um, you know, that I think is a whole new skill for people of like kind of that informed, introspective creativity, I think is really interesting. And like marketers are great at that, right? Like we're used to looking at ourselves and saying, what matters here? Like what part of what I connect with in a product matters to everyone else? Um, You know, you need that empathy in order to be a great marketer. And so I think actually marketers are a really good fit for kind of the the first adopters of some of these AI tools in in terms of the, the creativity married with the empathy like that framing of the reflection, right? I mean, it's very Socratic in nature. And, and this has the, mm-hmm. been the basis of rhetoric and philosophy and often kind of the, the, the fundamentals of discourse and dialogue is reflection on self, reflection on other ideas and kind of iteration to drive down to a root or a thesis or a fundamental belief. And so we have lost a bit of that in the past several decades. I feel like of the internet always has the information that you want. It's always at your fingertips. You can just kind of grab whatever's there, but this kind of forced or built in reflection on your own thoughts, which you are very right in that you are just kind of what you put out is what you get. And then you can iterate, Mm -hmm. iterate, iterate with this, this kind of partner, which is able to pair it back and maybe give you a little new information. I think that's a really helpful framing for the activity that you're actually doing is just getting better at your own thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about it, I think that sometimes that's why we feel a little bit threatened by AI. Um, You know, it didn't end well for Socrates doing all of that questioning, right? Like people didn't like it. Um, I think that there's, there's something to be learned there too of, you know, if we feel like there's something out there that might know more than us and is questioning us in kind of, and questioning the core of what we're thinking, like, of course, you're going to feel a little bit vulnerable there. <laughs> I think there's other reasons to feel vulnerable around AI and, you know, rightly so. And we need to find a balance there with you know ethics and transparency and safety and all of those good things. But I think one of those things is really understanding, like, how we think about AI and the philosophy of AI and, and whether we're threatened by that, by, you know, the thing we've created actually turning out to be like better than ourselves. The one redeeming aspect perhaps in that dialogue is even what you're describing of Max is a, is an assistant, right? Max is a, a junior level intern. And I know this is going to evolve over time, but I do think that what we're seeing over and over is that there is an expert, you in this case, who is then teaching or guiding or crafting or fact-checking Max, the junior AI assistant. And again, I do think that that shifts over time to where you can maybe get an expert that is just an AI. But I think generally speaking, there's going to be this this balance of AI plus human is always going to be better than human. And it's also going to be better than AI. And so I think we're always going to have that pairing. And I think that pairing is likely most effective and most value generative when it is a human expert that is very deep in knowledge and very deep in their craft and then leveraging an AI for speed, for breadth, for reach, for whatever it is. And, and that's kind of exactly what you're already talking about is, you know, you have the knowledge that you fed in all this information. And so there is a higher degree of trust 
with this particular GPT, this max that you've built with your team, because you've built it because you have trained it, not because you know it's been trained on 70 billion parameters, but it's because you have kind of layered in that extra level. And so I do think that mm -hmm. that is likely going to be a trend that stays at least for, I mean, things move fast in the AI world, but likely stays for, for a few years, if not forever, because having that expert that is the, the, uh, you know, the Leonardo da Vinci with his, his, you know, enclave of junior artists that are filling in gaps in, in other paintings. I think that's perpetually likely going to be more effective than just trying to make an AI that's a true expert that you can trust independent of, of having a, a human expert kind of overseeing it. Absolutely. And I'm the way I've heard of, um, I think it was the NVIDIA CEO speaking about it was you don't, get rid of air traffic controllers, right? Like flight safety has gotten better and better over time. And maybe at first you needed someone, the co-pilot needed to have, you know, hands on all of the controls uh, for, you know, every flight. And then suddenly we have autopilot, right? And the co-pilot doesn't need to have their hands on the controls. Maybe the main pilot doesn't need to always have their hands on the controls, right? You're able to bring in levels of kind of systems that can start to automate things, but you're still going to have a human that's in there at some point in the loop. And maybe the human gets further and further from the loop as you get kind of better and better at this safety piece, but they're still going to be there. Like maybe in a self-driving car, the, the person that's actually monitoring everything isn't in the car later on. Maybe they're at a city level kind of watching everything that's happening but you're still gonna have someone in the loop able to kind of help with making sure that everything's going okay. And I think that that human in the loop will always be there. It just, it's maybe a level further away than we think, um, or has a slightly different role, like maybe more of a supervisory role over a bunch of different AI, um, but you're always gonna need that person. And frankly, the, the output is better. Like, AI to AI, you get great output. But like, if you bring a human into the mix, they, they're bringing that like fallibility that actually gets you some really cool ideas. Um, you know, we're not perfect. Maybe AI kind of are at some point, they're not there yet. But the fact that we're not perfect, I think may actually lead to some of the innovation that happens there. And like that partnership between really fallible humans and in a different way, fallible AI, um, you know, we're, we're covering each other's gaps, I guess. Interesting. Yeah. It's an interesting perspective that our strength is our fallibility. Perhaps I'll maybe, <laughs> maybe, I don't know. <laughs> well, it gives us novelty, yeah. right? It gives us that innovation and the ability to be wrong, but also the ability to make something true that was previously not. And that, that belief right. of I can make this happen, which is fundamentally what a startup is, is there is a gap. It is not currently being served. And I believe that the market is wrong and I can, build something that that serves this need in this gap. Yeah. And there's all kinds of products out there that were built based on a mistake, right? Like AI wouldn't necessarily do that. Apparently chocolate chip cookies are built on a mistake. Like the chocolate chips just fell in there. I don't know if Toll House is just telling us that story though. We'll see. Sounds good. Sounds cool. <laughs> it sounds great. Either way, they had a great marketer. Exactly. Shifting back to marketing away from AI, even though I feel like we could riff on AI all day. Talk a <laughs> bit about in in of house versus out of house marketing are both fine is there a stage where you should definitely do one versus the other i think that for in-house versus out of house anything 
I think that if it's something that is core to your vision or your product, then you probably need to have someone who is really bought in. That doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be in-house, though. I think that there's kind of an evolving that's happening there where, you know, the fractional space has meant that you get someone who is more involved, who's more um, on your side. And, you know, they're at the strategic meetings. They're, you know, they're on your company Slack. They're not a separate agency. It just happens that they're working part time, but they're still part of the team. Um, so I think that's been a really good um way of moving forward so that there is more buy-in from those outside people. I think if you're going to use outside agencies at first, which frankly, a lot of companies need to do in order to scale because you're not going to have all of the expertise, you know, just pick things that are within the wheelhouse of the agency that you're using and have really concrete projects that can be followed through on where they know exactly what they're doing. They've done it a thousand times before and you haven't. That's a great time to use someone because they can be a force multiplier. They can make things go really quickly and they can make things go really well. If it's something that you and your team can get done yourselves, then you know it probably makes sense where you can to use your internal team. But you know, I don't think that like Tamu like made their own Super Bowl ad, for instance. Like that's not going to be within their wheelhouse, nor should it. And so if you're doing something that's outside of your normal wheelhouse, absolutely use use someone else for that. Um, I think that agencies are great for things like PR. Um, for brand activations, I think they're really interesting because they're going to have some expertise that you don't. Um, and then for kind of really large out-of-home campaigns, like that's not within most people's wheelhouse if they're a digital business at this point. So like traditional marketing, like I think sometimes we reach out uh, for outside for that. Um, it really depends on what the company is doing, but if it's something that's core to the business, like I just say, bring it in-house whenever you can, I guess. Just because you get that yeah, buy-in think, then from everyone. I think when you can, as well as like when you have enough work for that role to justify yeah. a full-time person, because I think Absolutely. that's a gap that that also shows up a lot. We've done, you know, we have a thing called CTO in a box where we kind of come in and we work with companies to provide that CTO level of service, call it fractional CTO, but it's really more comprehensive and it's typically mm -hmm. focused on what gap are we looking at? So it might be they have an existing agency and we don't know if they're performing or they aren't, but we don't have technical experience so we can't necessarily judge that. Or yeah. we have a team and it's stood up, but our processes are not really flowing and not really working well. So how do we fix that? Or we need mm -hmm. to you know, take a look at our code base because we're going to be acquired or, or go through a series A or B due diligence. And so those are situations where given that matter is an agency, we've done them over and over and over again. They've never done one. And so even if yeah. you have someone who maybe could do it to some degree, they're going to have to figure it out. And right. it's a question of like, how much, how frequent is that aspect that you need it to be in-house? Well, we're going to do it once every 18 months, best case scenario, or maybe once ever, right? And then right. coupled with like, do you even have the expertise? Can you afford the expertise in-house? Does it even make sense? So very aligned right. on, on that side too. I think, I think there is kind of this, this, this breakdown of the narrative that's been driven by Silicon Valley often, which is you need to always hire, 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 grow, 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 because that mm -hmm. is kind of a growth metric. 
And now it's far more about profitability and, and building a good business. And so if you can find ways to achieve the results without having a full-time W2 salaried person that you are not stuck with, but you, you should, if you're hiring someone, you should try to make a commitment to keep them on, not just keep them on for three right. months. And so right. if there are alternative paths, then I think it's becoming a lot more discussed and explored and accepted in the current kind of economic environment with, with the startup scene. Absolutely. And I've seen a lot of startups are very much, as you said, trying for profitability. It's a different world than it was, you know, 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, um, where, you know, it was growth at all costs and, you know, profitability was kind of this thing to be sniffed at mainly, mainly by VCs, right? Yep. Um, I think as the M&A market has gotten more difficult and as, you know, regulatory environment has gotten more difficult there, like they're not seeing as many exits in terms of M&A and IPO is harder than ever, right? Like it used to be something that, that startups did to raise money. And now it's very much something that a mature startup does when they're like, have all of these boxes checked and they're, you know, 10 years into the game at that point. I think that because VCs don't have as many exit opportunities, they're starting to see that profitability as important as well, right? Like maybe there's a buyback from the VCs at some point because like, they got to get out at some point. They're not going to get in unless they they have some liquidity at some point, right? Um, so on the VC side, you see a lot more of that profitability focus. And then on the entrepreneur side, there are so many more bootstrapped startups at this point because it's so much more possible. Like you can stand up a little AI team for nothing, right? <laughs> not nothing, but a lot less. Um, or you can, you know, stand up a very small team and then, um, kind of have them do a lot more than they used to be able to because of AI. And then you can supplement with agencies, with studios, with all kinds of different resources that are out there to have these kind of outsized returns and get profitable immediately. Like it, it's kind of a no brainer that if you can do that and keep your company to yourself, like why wouldn't you? <laughs> like there's still a place very much for, for VCs and for getting some investment, but like, the calculation I think is changing for people and like that calculation of when to bring in an agency has come along with that. I don't think you need to always hire, as you said, like it used to be that you were very much encouraged to, and it was like building out your like hiring pipeline was your projections for what you needed in terms of money. And that's not true anymore. It's like, okay, here's where agencies fit in. Here's where all of my AI tools fit in. Here's where hiring fits in. And then like, here's where my automation tools fit in as well, which like is a whole other piece of the puzzle that, that made things a lot easier. So I think with a mixture of software, AI, people, agencies, you can get a lot further than you used to. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's, I think it's a healthy shift too. It's not to say that one tool is better than the other of hiring in house or hiring an agency, but it's right. to say that they're both tools and use them to achieve the goals that you're setting out to do most effectively. Yeah. And that's it. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And there's just so much more nuance in that um, approach than there used to be. Laura, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for coming on. If people yeah, want to find course. out more about you or connect with you or potentially hire you, where should they go to find out more about Laura? Um, they can go to LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest. Um, I haven't really been active on like Twitter X, whatever we're calling it now. 
um, recently. So more LinkedIn. Um, and then uh, laura-fredericks.com is, is my site for consulting. So people can reach out there as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.